This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 1, The Prophets in Historical Perspective. In our opening lecture in this class on the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah through Malachi, we'll be beginning with an historical perspective on the prophets. The first three lectures will be broken into these three main perspectives or angles on the prophetic materials. One, historical, lecture one, then lecture two, a literary approach to the prophets, and then number three, lecture number three, a thematic perspective on the prophets. Well, we're going to begin with historical concerns. Here we're concerned particularly with what prophets were and how they functioned within the history of Israel and what their role was in relationship to the people with whom they lived and the God with whom they served. And so we'll begin starting off with some basic terminology. Roman numeral one, terminology, capital A, names and descriptions. If you look at figure 1-1, this figure portrays the idea of what a prophet is by focusing on the various terminologies that are used in the Bible to refer to prophets. As the figure indicates, that modern readers often think of prophets as someone who predicts the future. That's our basic idea and our common use of the term. When we think of a prophet, we're thinking about somebody who foretells or someone who gives prophecies that predict what's going to happen in the future. And our English word, um, prophets, uh, is used this way for the most part in modern parlance, but this is not what the Bible means when it says prophet. So let's go into this just a bit and see if we can understand what the Bible means when it uses the word prophet. To begin with, our English word prophet comes from the Greek word prophetes that's used in the Septuagint. Now the word prophetes can be broken into two basic parts, pro on the one hand meaning to forth or beforehand and to phetes to tell or to announce. And so this word prophet in the Greek language can have at least two kinds of meanings. One, a person who speaks forth or a person who foretells or tells beforehand. So it can be either to speak forth or make an announcement boldly or it can mean to make an announcement before uh, something takes place. So there's a bit of ambiguity in the word prophet itself in the Greek language, but this ambiguity affords us a, a, an insight into the two main things that prophets do. Contrary to the way we normally think of prophets, that is, those who simply tell the future, prophets in the Bible do at least two kinds of things. One, they tell the future, in that sense they predict, but on the other hand, they also proclaim, that is, they announce things forthrightly and present them to people, things that ideas and concepts that have particular relevance for the time at hand, not simply for the future. Now this Greek word, prophetes, that we find in the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, reflects uh, several different Hebrew expressions, expressions found in the Hebrew Bible. The primary word that's translated prophet by the Septuagint is the Hebrew word navi, navi. Now a navi basically means a called person. And so when you think about a navi or a prophet in the Old Testament, the most frequent word is not even someone who tells forth or someone who foretells. It's someone who's been called by God, specially designated by God to a special place of service. 
There are other terms that are prominent in the Bible. The term roe, for example, seer, and you can see some of the references there. Also, jose, who is someone who observes as opposed to simply sees. You also find as you look through the Bible of the Old Testament that there are other kinds of expressions, a man of God, the watchman, a messenger of Yahweh, and at times Yahweh himself calls the prophets my servants. These are the kinds of names and descriptions that we have of prophets in the Bible. This brings us then to Roman numeral 1, B, the characteristics of prophets. Figure 1.2 gives us an outline, just a sketch of the kinds of things that characterize prophets. And it lays these characteristics out according to their various designations or terminologies as we've seen them in the previous figure. An avi is someone who's called and designated by God to be his spokesman. And you can look at the references and see how the idea of being called by God as opposed to being paid by people is very important, for example, in Amos chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 6, the very famous passage where Isaiah is called to speak God's word to God's people, uh, indicates that Isaiah himself was very cognizant of the fact that God had called him. Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter 1. These are people who have been chosen or designated by God to be a spokesman. These are not elected by popular demand. They are not people who seek the office. They are people who are in many respects ripped out of their own safe environments and brought into this very precarious job of being spokespeople for God. Now the designations Roe and Jose also give us a slightly different um, outlook on what a prophet does. The premonarchical term is Jose, an observer, a seer, and you can look at 1 Samuel 9, 9 to see where the reference is made that prophets were at that time, that is prior to the monarchy, called seers. And the reason they were called seers is because they were people who had visions. In fact, this is one of the main things that prophets experienced. It was visions, as opposed to auditions, simply hearing God speak, or instead of um, merely having extreme or dramatic psychological experiences of God, the prophets actually had visions of heaven, visions of the future, visions of things that were taking place in other parts of the world. Quite remarkable the kind of focus there is given to us as we look at this word seer or observer, we can understand that this is one of the key things that prophets did. They saw things given to them by God. Now other terms like man of God indicates that, he's, that the prophets were pious, devotees, godly people. A watchman is a technical term for one who announced impending doom or blessing, someone who would stand on the wall or stand on the tower and look out and see what was coming. A messenger of Yahweh meant that the prophets were envoys or representatives of Yahweh. Servants of Yahweh meant that they were ones with mission from God, that, that these were not ideas or missions of their own making. Now the purpose of understanding these names, descriptions, and then having some idea of the basic characteristics of prophets is to lead us into a, an appreciation of how broad the prophetic function was within the history of Israel. So Roman numeral 1c, the breadth of function, appears in figure 1.3. What we notice here is that prophets were not 
uh, singular kinds of people. They were not people who had only one purpose or one kind of function or one kind of role or one thing that they did over and over and over again. Instead, their experiences as prophets were multifaceted, their characteristics were multifaceted, and their missions were also multifaceted. The same person could have all kinds of things going on in his or her life, the same prophet or prophetess, and could have all kinds of different missions and purposes ahead of them. For example, I hear that I have here the ideas that prophets were often examples to the people of what a pious life was to be, what a devoted life to Yahweh would look like. They, um, they sacrificed their lives on the behalf of people. They had insights into the, not only into the future supernaturally, but they also had just simply wisdom insights into present-day circumstances. They encouraged. They didn't always rebuke. Sometimes they actually encouraged. They looked to the past. They also looked to the future. They warned as well as encouraged. They showed themselves to be devoted to, to Yahweh in many different ways. They had visions. They were representative of the people. They had dreams. They talked about the present as well as the future. On and on it goes. And I guess that what I'm trying to get across at this point in these initial words about prophecy is that we begin to expand our idea of what a prophet is, at least in relation to the way most evangelicals normally think about a prophet. Our concept of prophet is so very narrow and so very tight that we can hardly deal with the actual phenomena of prophets in the Bible because prophets, if you think of them, people like Isaiah, then range that over to a person like Daniel or to a person like Ezekiel, none of whom are very similar to each other, we can begin to see that what God calls prophets, what the Bible calls prophets, is a very broad and multifaceted kind of historical reality. And so as we begin this course, we need to be ready to be taught from the Bible what a prophet actually is, rather than reading into the Bible what we from our own backgrounds or from our own traditions might think a prophet is. This brings us then to Roman numeral two, the tradition of prophets, the tradition of prophets. Letter A. Prophetic characters in the Bible. Figure 1.4 gives us a list. It's fairly comprehensive. Now, I have to admit that there, I, that there are some things that are left out here, I'm sure. If, if you discover some that are left out, I want you to let me know if you would. But the idea here is that I'm trying to give a rather comprehensive list of people who are called prophets in the Bible. The very first one, of course, being Enoch, um, Malachi perhaps being the very last one. And so you, you sort of get a sense that there are all kinds of people, all kinds of situations that are, or um, these people live, who are called prophets. When you think of someone like Abraham, Abraham is in one place called a Navi or a prophet. And yet, at the same time, he's obviously not one who did much predicting of the future. Moses is called prophet. Deborah is a prophetess. We have a number of unnamed people, the man of God in Judges 13. We have sons of prophets in 1 Kings 19. But you see there are basically four categories as I've outlined them here on figure 1.4. First, we have the pre-monarchical, and there are a number of those prophets. And then you have the monarchical period where the list is rather long. Some of them we know well, like Nathan and um, Shemaiah and a few others, Jeremiah perhaps, and some of the other Bible biblical prophets, writing prophets like Jonah and Amos. But then we move on to the exilic period where you have relatively few prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah. 
and then the post-exilic period. This, of course, would be the time after the exile when Israel had come back to the land, and I mentioned there Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The purpose of this chart is simply to give you a sense of how many prophetic characters there are in the Bible and how they are distributed over the whole range of Old Testament history. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2, letter B, developments in prophetism in Israel. As we think about how the historical reality of prophets existed in Israel, we find that it wasn't as if there were always prophets, the same number of prophets doing the same kinds of things at every single period of Old Testament history. On the contrary, even as figure 1.5 illustrates, um, there were developments in prophetism in Israel. This bar chart, as it were, is designed to give you a sense of how much emphasis the Bible puts on prophets at each of the four major periods as we've outlined them in the previous figure. In the pre-monarchical period, there were relatively few prophets walking around. Take a look back at figure 1.4. You can see the list, relatively few. Most of these people were leaders. They were also consultants. You think of someone like Moses who speaks of the prophetic office in Deuteronomy 18, and then you can think also of Judges chapter 4 and Deborah and her role and those sorts of things. These are, as it were, pre-monarchical prophets who had the role of being consultants or community leaders in Israel. They did not play much of a role like Ezekiel did or even Nathan, these kinds of things. Those were quite different because those prophets were in different periods of Old Testament history. Now, what's really amazing is that in the second stage, as it were, of prophecy in the Bible, you have a surge, an absolute surge of activity during the monarchical period. Here you find that there, as you read through the Bible, there are, there's one prophet after another, after another, after another. Again, referring to figure 1.4, you can see that the list is very long, and if you add to the list all the unnamed prophets that are mentioned there in just a group, you can find that, um, that there are many things that are going on under the rubric of prophecy during the monarchical period. The prophets at this time were not so much leaders because after all, kings were leaders at that time. They were not so much consultants, but they were having the role of holding the theocracy in check. Now, by theocracy, I mean the kingship and the rule of the king over Israel. They had a role, a very specific role that we'll talk about later, but their function at this time was to hold the theocracy in check, to watch it, to make sure things were done as they were supposed to be done. Now we discover that in the next phase, the exilic period, there we return to a time when there are relatively few prophets in Israel. One of the main purposes these prophets had was to encourage hope within the people. If you think of Ezekiel and Daniel, these would be exilic prophets, and their role was primarily to encourage people to hold on during the hard times of the exile and to realize that God was not finished with His people, that He had a future, a future that would, of course, climax in the coming of the great Messiah. Uh, whom we Christians know to be Jesus. And then finally, the post-exilic period is also a time of relatively few prophets. They, these prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra were primarily giving people instruction, warning them against apostasy, and of course holding out some hope as well for the future glory of Israel. But primarily they instructed and warned people against turning away from Yahweh during the 
post-exilic period. So we have then these four main periods of prophecy. The first starts off relatively low activity, then you have a surge during the monarchical period, then a dropping back down during the exilic and post-exilic periods to relative inactivity in the, in the prophetic circles. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2c, the continuities within the prophetic tradition, figure 1.6. As much as we have emphasized up to this point, the discontinuities, the developments within the prophetic tradition going from one period to the next, we need to make it clear that the prophets were not in disharmony with each other. As they moved from one stage to the next, there was great harmony between them, and figure 1.6 tries to sh Moses, of course, is the great fountainhead, the prototype of all prophets, and he is, as it were, the supreme prophet of the pre-monarchical, but then again of all the, the periods of prophetic tradition. But we can see that the monarchical prophets depended very heavily on pre-monarchical prophecy. And for example, when Samuel, in 1 Samuel 8, uh, resists the idea of Israel having a king like all the other nations, he depends on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, beyond that, the exilic prophets also depend on the Mosaic foundation. You can see this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11. Also, Malachi, a post-exilic prophet, depends on the Mosaic fountainhead or prototype. So we see a continuity of dependence on Mosaic material running all the way through the prophets. As much as they're different from age to age, they are similar in this respect. We can move down just one stage and see that post-exilic prophets depended on monarchical prophets, and monarchical prophets depended on um, each other. And we can also see then that post-exilic prophets depended on the exilic prophets who depended on each other. And then we can see that exilic prophets depended on each other as well. You can take a look at these references and see that the prophets actually refer to each other, interact with each other, use each other as examples, borrow each other's words. This happens over and over again in the prophetic material. The point that's being made here is that while there are, while there are differences between the pre-monarchical, monarchical, exilic, and post-exilic prophets, they were self-consciously representing a tradition within Israel one that was mutually dependent and one that had continuity. So as we think about the prophets, we must work hard not to separate them into a variety of offices or to distinguish them too, too readily or too much. Now we come to Roman numeral three, the theocratic function of prophets. And this, this idea will form in many respects the core of what we're going to be doing in this course trying to understand how the prophets served within the nation of Israel. And to, to grab this idea, we have to go to Roman numeral 3a, the development of prophecy into an office. We need to remember that, as figure 1.7 indicates, during the pre-monarchical period, the prophets had quite diverse and broad functions. But during the monarchical period, something happened to prophets with the institutionalization of kingship and the development of a significant theocracy, a statecraft, a government, there came the need for something to hold the theocracy in check. And with that came the institutionalization of the prophet. Now some prophets went so far as actually to be paid by the government. 
And these, of course, are known in the Bible as the false prophets because for the most part, true prophets in Israel were not paid. They did not receive their um, allowances from the kings because they wanted to be free to speak Yahweh's word. But never, nevertheless, uh, prophets, even true prophets, were deeply involved in the politics of the day. And that is what we must see to be as the center or the core of monarchical prophecy. And also, as we move to the exilic period, there's little statecraft going on. Of course, Israel's together in exile, but spread out to other different places as well, from Babylon, through all through Assyria, up in the north and down in the south into Egypt. And so there's not a lot of statecraft in, within the, among the Israelites, but, and so the prophecy is not very prominent either. They had no real theocratic function in that sense. They pointed to the day instead when the theocracy would be reestablished. And so it is that in the post-exilic period, with the beginnings of the theocracy beginning again under the reign or the rule of Zerubbabel and the leadership of uh, Yeshua, you find that prophets begin to reassert their role in the center of life in Israel. Now, the theocratic nature of, prophets, of prophets, the prophetic office, brings us to the place of understanding what prophets were. Figure 1.8, Roman numeral 3b, to understand what a prophet was in Israel, we have to understand something about the ancient Near Eastern background of prophecy. There have been many models given for what Israel's prophets were. I think the one that is best suited for what the Bible says can be found in Meredith Klein's book, The Structure of Biblical Authority, and others that I list here in figure 1.8. Let me see if I can give you the basic concept. In effect, in the ancient Near East, A-N-E stands for ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, suzerains or Caesars, great uh, emperors, would make covenants or treaties with vassal kings and the people of these vassal kings, kingdoms. And these covenants, these treaties, would have stipulations that would embrace both the suzerain and the people and lesser kings. These suzerains often found it necessary to send political emissaries, that is messengers, to apply the rules of the covenant treaties and to prosecute those who were in violation of the covenant treaty stipulations. This basic idea of an international emissary, someone who would come from the great king down to the lesser king and to his people in order to apply and to enforce the, um, the laws of the great king, this basic political institution became a model or at least it helps us understand what Yahweh was doing in using prophets as he did in the Old Testament. Because in the, New, in the Old Testament, we find the idea, as the figure on the right-hand side of 1.8 indicates, is that Yahweh is the great king, the great suzerain. And he has entered into covenant with stipulations with the kings of Judah and Israel and their people. And the prophet, the prophetic office, was used like these international emissaries to apply and to prosecute violators of the covenant, to apply the laws of the covenant and to prosecute them. We know this because of similarity in terminology between what these emissaries in the ancient world would do and say and what um, the prophets of the Bible would do and say. For example, the word to know, but the way the prophets use the word know as um, 
to, to know that I am Yahweh, meaning to experience the punishment, to experience the hand of Yahweh, and to experience the grace of Yahweh. Or the Hebrew word reeve or contend, which actually means lawsuit. That's, it's a technical term meaning a legal lawsuit. And um, this is what prophets often did. They brought reeves or they brought lawsuits against the people and against the king. The prophets also often call for witnesses, and this too is legal terminology. They often speak of the witnesses of heaven and earth. And the prophets focus on the king and the people in ways that are very similar to what the emissaries of the ancient Near Eastern international treaties would do. And what this analogy does is it opens the way for us to understand the emissarial function of Old Testament prophets. Prophets were not people that just walked down the street and received visions and told people about their visions. This is not at least at the heart of what a prophet was. At the center, at the core of prophecy in Israel was the idea that Yahweh is the great king over Israel and he is in covenant with his people. And this covenant includes stipulations. There is a need, however, because of disobedience and obedience within the covenantal people for there to be some kind of mediation between God, the great suzerain, and Israel. And the prophets were those mediators. They were the emissaries, as it were, of Yahweh's law. This brings us then to Roman numeral 3c, the emissarial function, as portrayed in figure 1.9. To get a handle on this idea, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is that famous passage where Isaiah receives his call to be a prophet against the sins of Judah. And in this, we see the basic elements of a prophet as an emissary of the great suzerain Yahweh. To begin with, we see that Isaiah received his message from God the King. In the first seven verses, we find that the vision of the prophet is that of God seated on his throne. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see immediately that the image of Yahweh is that of a king. And he is in his throne, on, on his throne, in his throne room, um, at this point where he's actually taking royal counsel. And very often you find that prophets receive their visions and receive their callings and their messages at, at the foot of Yahweh's great throne. Above him, verse 2, were the seraphs with each of six wings. They're crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Everything shakes. You have this wonderful, powerful scene, finally um, consummating in verse uh, 6, where he says, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Yahweh, in his throne room, looking for someone to bear his message, asking, as it were, for a volunteer. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? and who will go for us? The us there is the heavenly council, Yahweh and his angels. Isaiah steps forward, having been cleansed by the seraph, and says, here am I, send me. So Isaiah is volunteering to be a messenger on behalf of the great king, just like you would have emissaries in the ancient world 
coming into the throne room of their king, and the king says, who will go to my vassal nation and represent me? And someone within the group volunteers to take that role. Then the king would say, go do it. And that's exactly what God does in verse 9. Go tell this people. And God then commissions Isaiah to bear the message to the covenanted people in verses 9 through verse 13. Fascinating, isn't it, to see the comparisons between a political function in the ancient world and the function of a prophet in, within the people of Israel, within the nation of Israel. What we discover is something very interesting is in chapter 7, the first thing that, that Isaiah does is he goes out and he addresses the king. You can see this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and end of the aqueduct to the upper pool. And so Isaiah is given the role of speaking to the king. And this is what prophets often did. Sometimes they spoke positively to kings, and sometimes they spoke negatively, as figure 1-9 suggests. But then prophets would also do this. In addition to speaking to the vassal king, and the king of Judah, in this case Ahaz, was Yahweh's vassal king, they would also address the people directly. They would address priests. They would address other prophets. They would address the people of Israel. They would even address other nations, offering both positive and negative messages from Yahweh, their great suzerain. As we begin this course on the prophets, we need to think very carefully about the nature of prophecy. As we've seen in this lecture, the terminology is varies from case to case, from person to person, and this lets us know that there were many characteristics and a breadth of function for what prophets did in the Old Testament. We've also seen that the prophetic tradition was a varied reality. There were many prophets in the Bible, and the prophetic tradition grew. In fact, it went through a major surge during the monarchical time and then had less activity in other times. But as much as there were differences between each period, there were also great continuities between the prophets of later periods and early periods. But what is at the heart of what it means to be a prophet? It's a theocratic function, a theocratic role. Much like in the ancient Near East, where great suzerains would, give, would send emissaries to their vassal kings and to the people of those vassal kingdoms, Yahweh chose certain people to be His emissaries, to mediate His law, to mediate His covenant with His vassal king and with His vassal people, the nation of Israel. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.